Hello again, my name is Sanders Offner, and I am the president of Crescent and Impact HR, and this is another edition of Down the HR Rabbit Hole. Got a few folks here joining us today. Obviously, our director of HR, Philip Carrillo, our special guest, Ms. Kat Perez-Bethune, and our marketing director on the board, Ms. Cheyenne Green. So before, uh, you know, obviously we get into this discussion about ADA, Philip, why don't you um, introduce our guest and the topic as well? Sure. Well, um, back with us today is Kat Perez, who is one of my favorite guests because I always learn so much when she's with us, uh, talking today about um, ADA. And, I, and rather than doing the um, usual educational approach that we take sometimes and boring everyone in our audience, we're going to ask you um, more I- example-oriented questions so that you can, um, so that employers who are listening today can take um, your examples and and some of your advices to um, and apply them to their workforce and so uh, to protect their business so um, we thank you so much for coming back on the show with us always a pleasure (laughs) so Kat um, I'm sure you've got tons of examples of where this niche of yours that you really do a a great job in has, has come up so you know for our listeners what's one or two examples of scenarios that you've come across that you know, I'm not going to say are comical in nature, but to where, you know, it was a it was an obviously an, um, a situation that came up that was you know important for you know ADA to come into play and and obviously where you gave some guidance. Sure. Well, obviously the ADA applies to employers that have more than 15 employees. Sometimes I'm talking to employers that have 50 employees, and sometimes I'm talking to employers who have 14,000 employees. And so um, it really depends on the size of the employer and really the industry that the employer's in. Uh, in terms of what kinds of ADA matters they see come up. Um, When I first started my practice many, many years ago, I didn't get a lot of calls on the ADA, but now that I've really gone deep in the ADA, I'm talking about people's ADA issues all the time. Um, More recently, there's uh, definitely an increase in requests for accommodations related to um, mental health, substance abuse, um, working people who want to work from home post-COVID, and they're going to come up with a good reason to keep working from home, usually some sort of Disability, and of course, there's lots of legitimate reasons why somebody might also need that kind of accommodation. So I've heard everything from, you know, my insomnia keeps me from coming to work timely every day to, um, you know, certain instances with people having drug and alcohol problems, uh, being unable to do certain safety-sensitive positions, um, all kinds of, I mean, I can't even tell you all the different things that you hear from an accommodation standpoint. Uh, people who don't want to be around any noise or smells or light, um, pregnant individuals who are also ac- entitled to an accommodation and the things they might need related to their pregnancy. So there's there's really no limit to what an ADA accommodation could be. It could really be any change in, in a job function so long as the employee can continue to perform the essential functions of their job. An employer really needs to work on an interactive process where they uncover with the employee what they might be able to do to accommodate the employee while so, so long as the employee can still perform their essential functions. So it's a very dynamic process, involves a lot of back and forth, working with the employee themselves in the interactive process, and then also working with um, medical providers of the employee to get substantiating information about the disability and what those limitations might be. We tell our clients, um, employers all day long, that the job description is so important for just that reason, the essential duties piece. If you don't have it defined, how on earth 
can you uh, determine when an employee comes to you with a request for accommodation whether they're able to perform the job that you're needing them to do i mean <laughs> certainly job job descriptions are important for so many reasons but one of them is that when somebody requests an accommodation and you say you know sorry we can't give you that accommodation because that's an essential function of the job and without it you know you can't have this job um, it has to actually be essential a function that's not essential is called marginal sort of a circular analysis of essential versus marginal but if it's in the job description, it says you have to be able to lift, bend, twist, torque, um, dexterity in your hands, whatever those physical requirements might be, or other types of requirements, um, the job description can help support the employer when they say, no, that's an essential function of the job. It's really important you be able to do that. And if you can't, we cannot accommodate you. Yeah, you mentioned one other thing in your earlier um, segment there that, um, kind of stuck with me and it had to do with safety on the job. So um, we have a number of manufacturing clients and that's continues to grow as we continue growing our business and, and just being where we are in the South here. Um, <coughs> a lot of times they'll come to me and they'll say something like, um, we need to be sure that they can do the job without endangering others in the warehouse or without um, you know, breaking down because it's so hot in the summers here and so on. Um, <coughs> And so a common question that arises is, um, can we test them for physical fitness? Um, you know, what are the parameters? Um, how do we really uh, confirm that they're actually able to do the job? I mean, the best way to figure out if somebody can do the job is often to give them an opportunity to do the job. I think that's probably what the EEOC would tell you. But in physically demanding jobs, there's, of course, also the opportunity to do pre-employment physicals. Those need to be post-offer pre-employment physicals. And you can ask um, other, you know, physical-related questions after you've given that offer. You can put them through a pre-employment physical, make sure they can lift a certain object, bend, turn, climb, crawl, whatever those physical requirements might be. As long as you put everybody in that same job category through the same pre-employment physical. I can't just interview one person and decide, eh, I'm not real sure about them. Let me give them a pre-employment physical. If you're going to do it, you need to do it for an entire job class mm -hmm. and then what I'll say on the safety side is if there's if you have a reason to believe that once somebody's on the job they're not performing the job safely then if you have a reasonable suspicion of for example drugs and alcohol or if you have a business related need to believe that somebody can't perform the job and therefore would pose a safety risk then you have the opportunity to ask additional medical medical questions or potentially do other medical tests but you have to be really careful in doing so because it needs to not be based off of your hint or your suspicion about somebody, but really some objective criteria that makes you believe that the person poses what's known under the ADA as a direct threat. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I have, a, I have a question, and this might be obviously different from what you all were just talking about, just thinking about it. So let's say you're a, a decent-sized company, and th it's run by an HR department. Um, and the director of human resources knows that they probably have a couple situations in the workplace that are violating ADA. What is their, I guess, responsibility to the ownership of the company? You know, obviously they're going to go to them and say, I think we've, we need to change these things up or make these accommodations. But if the, the owners of the business don't comply with some of those recommendations and there's recourse, what happens to the human resource person in well, that scenario? I'd like to think that a lot of the human resources people are raising issues with owners of company all the time and they may or may not heed their best advice. 
um, you know, the person in HR is you know, the first person, hopefully, to identify these compliance problems. Really, you're you, you talk about a you know pretty big size employer. Your first line of defense is these supervisors and managers who should be well trained to recognize these types of issues. But if it gets past the supervisor and, and the manager and it, you know HR comes to understand that it's a problem and they raise it to company management and management doesn't want to do anything about it, um, you know depending on what happens, an employee can bring a lawsuit for either disability discrimination or failure to accommodate under the ADA. So disability would, discrimination would be you. You know, took some action against me because of my disability. You didn't hire me, or you fired me. Uh, you did an illegal drug test on me and then fired me. Um, that would be disability discrimination. And then failure to accommodate would be, you know, I needed an accommodation. You refused to even discuss it with me. You didn't go through the, inter through the interactive process. And when I couldn't do this one piece of the job that wasn't really essential, you terminated me. So you know, there is risk for employers who don't follow the ADA. The EEOC is all over it right now. I'm on the list for the EEOC press releases, and in balance of all the press releases I get, I'd say right now about half of them are disability related. So the EEOC is really interested in making sure that um, employers are doing the right thing by employees with disabilities. Really the process of, of trying to accommodate somebody, that doesn't mean that the outcome's always gonna be an accommodation. You know, Employers have a defense of there's an undue hardship on the business, that's a defense. If there's a direct threat by the employee, that's a defense, but uh, the employer needs to at least be knowing about their obligations, having a policy, interacting with employees, and seeing what they might be able to do to accommodate an employee with a disability. So, you know, Kat, and, you, and obviously this being a niche of yours, are you, are you going in and advising your clients or, or almost taking an audit of what they're doing and advising them on what they should be doing or what they're doing is working? Like, how does that work? Definitely. I mean, I work with different clients in different ways, but I've created a compliance program that puts forth, like, the policies, the request form that the employee will request an accommodation, the draft letter to the doctor asking questions that you need to make your determination, guidance around how to conduct the interactive process with the employee, and then also with managers to make sure there's no undue hardship. Draft letters around, you know, you are granted your accommodation or you're not granted the accommodation and this is why, and then other guidelines that go with it. But... For some clients, I'm on call for their actual cases. So say a client has 12,000 employees and they have a whole department that's just for accommodations. And these are very skilled HR folks, but these, these situations, especially for large uh, employers in high-risk industries, can be really complicated. And so you know, we'll have weekly calls to talk through all of their pending ADA requests, next steps in terms of make sure to ask the doctor this, or talk to the employee about that, or make sure that, uh, that the manager has documented the undue hardship if we think this is going in a direction where we're not gonna accommodate. So really sort of giving that everyday advice to help them navigate the cases that are in front of them to figure out um, you know, whether or not they're gonna grant an a particular accommodation or offer an alternate accommodation. So Louisiana being a very much employee first state, you know, wh where do businesses really have, I know there's risk, right, but it seems to me that it's the state is always going to typically end up ruling with the employee when there's any type of, you know, complaint brought against their employer. So, as you're representing the uh, these employers, and as an employer myself, like that kind of scares me a little bit to know that hey, once I hit and I've got what, 31 employees now, mm -hmm. so thinking about these accommodations, like where 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 are you able to put me at ease, you know, with with, with what you're doing for your clients. Or what should I be doing? 
Well, I would say sometimes employers have the best intentions. They start out saying, of course we want to accommodate this employee with this disability. They need a modified schedule. I'd be delighted to give them a modified schedule. But then as time goes on, the employer feels like the employee is either taking advantage or it's getting to be too much of disruption on the business. And if they haven't you know, formalized a process and made sure that they've got their ducks in a row, then all of a sudden they're stressed out by it. They need to let the person go because they have a business need. And then that person says, well, you, you, know, you violated the ADA. This is disability discrimination. And you're like, well, I had a really legitimate business need, but you haven't documented those things appropriately. So nothing's ever, there's really not much that's going to stop somebody from filing a lawsuit, right? We all know that. Like, you're going to get sued. It's the cost of doing business. But the comfort is in knowing that by following a, a really well-done process, by engaging in the interactive process with the employee, by taking all of these steps, like any other part of an HR process, you've got great documentation should it ever come up. And I will say that you know, you're less likely to get held accountable by the EEOC themselves. So when an employee you know, leaves and they're agreed, they'll go and file an EEOC charge for disability discrimination, race discrimination, you know, sort of name your protected class. And as long as you have a good defense, the EEOC usually issues a, a no-cause finding, and then the employee would have to go find a lawyer and file a lawsuit in federal court to really pursue you. But if you're not following the basics, if you don't have policies, if you, you know, make it very blatant that you didn't even consider an interactive process, you terminated a person. There was an EEOC case filed a week before last about a woman who had applied for a position, had received a conditional offer, they found out she was missing a hand, and the employer, without going through any interactive process, just withdrew her offer. Well, the EEOC is like, well, that's a great case for us. That's pretty easy. So when the EEOC comes after you, they have the weight of the federal government, the funding of the federal government, you know, the Biden administration's uh, focus on increasing employee rights. They take all of the weight of that agency against your business, and that's what you should really be worried about. So having good HR, having somebody help you with these policies and processes, while it may not stop an individual employee from suing you, it will give you much better chances with the e having, you know, to not have the EEOC come down on you with the weight of the agency. Thank you for that response. <laughs> Philip, I have a question for you. It seems lately as we've, uh, with some of our impact clients, that um, trying to attract good talent is has been the focus, and that comes with a, you know, a, a, a pretty unique job description or um, or job posting for that matter. Where where do you seeing employers have any type of, um, I guess, response or inclination to include any of this ADA stuff in some of these job descriptions? Because I don't see it. Maybe you do. Yeah, I don't think um, I can think of almost no client of ours that um, had any uh, statement respective to the uh, working conditions on the job, the physical demands of the job. Um, certainly, if they did, they were uh, probably inadequate at best. And so what I mean by that is um, that you may say, well, you're going to be sitting a lot in the job. But um, there's a particular way and language that the ADA wants or that the, the uh, that employer should include. Um, and it's, it's, it clearly articulates for the person who is applying what they can expect in the job. But it also, um, importantly, is not overstating what is required by the job. Um, it's, in other words, if you're, if you're saying something like, well, they have to be able to lift 30 pounds in the role, and that might be 
once every year, they might have to pick up a box that may be 15 pounds. That is not something that you would state in a job description because that would be exclusive of the employee or the applicant um, who may be otherwise fully capable of doing the job and doing it very well. So um, that's what I mean by inadequate statements or um, just plain outright wrong statements. And those, I think, would land you in some risk territory when, you, when you've got poorly written um, statements about what are um, the functions of the job and how to who would be successful in the job. Yeah, I think there's you know a lot of reasons in the HR role as to putting together a good job description to make sure that you're not having people self-select out of the job mm -hmm. by saying things that they say. Well, you know, I can't do that. I you know I that's not I can't lift 80 pounds when 80 pounds is not really a, a real job job requirement. So um, you know there are other ways in the disability sort of awareness sector the, for the disability advocates they feel strongly about certain things like um, um, some of the more esoteric things that you might put in about you know must be a team player and must have prompt attention to detail and so if there's a lot about attention to detail then somebody who might have a neurodiversity um, type of disability might say I'm not going to apply for that and so there are some you know disability advocates out there saying we need to really look at these job descriptions and make sure that they're um, really inclusive. Now, I know plenty of employers that are not inclined to do that, but um, it's certainly something we're thinking about. And there are employers now who are creating programs to try and attract neurodiverse people. So I'm talking about uh, people on the autism spectrum, people with Asperger's, people with PTSD, um, all kinds you know, that they that think differently, and that um, people are starting to recognize that those people have some real attributes that might be a benefit in a particular role. So there are some larger employers that are creating whole programs to try and employ um, people with disabilities and you know a person without a disability might wonder if that's discrimination sort of your version of reverse discrimination um, but it's not because the ADA only protects people with disabilities it doesn't protect people without disabilities unlike title 7 for example that protects people of all races and all genders so that there is sort of that opportunity for a reverse discrimination hypothetical What's another example that you've come across lately, Kat, that would, you know, for our listeners might, you know, spark a little bit of interest? Yeah, I was going to talk a little bit about uh, animals in the workplace. So the EEOC just filed a big lawsuit against Hobby Lobby. Now, Hobby Lobby is a place of public accommodation, right? It's an open store to the public. It is subject to a different section of the ADA, the public accommodation section. But in this case, there was a, a, a checkout person who wanted to bring their animal to work for what I believe is probably PTSD or anxiety, and Hobby Lobby, you know, terminated them or denied their request to bring their animal to uh, to work as an accommodation. And you know what the EEOC is saying in that case is not only are you an employer that has to go through the ADA accommodations process, you are a place of public, you know, you're an established public accommodations location. Therefore, anybody in the public can bring in their animal as an accommodation. So if you're an employee in that situation, you should be able to bring your animal as well. In a private employment setting, it's not the same. I know people talk about like service animal versus emotional support animal. In the workplace, there's really no difference. It's I'm requesting to bring an animal to work to assist me with a disability. Is that a reasonable accommodation based on my disability or does it present an undue hardship to the employer or a direct threat? So the usual defenses of employers are like, oh, somebody might have an allergy, or what if the dog bites somebody, or what if they relieve themselves in the lobby? Um, you know, those are all hypotheticals, and I think what the EEOC would tell you is that's not good enough. 
you should engage in the interactive process, determine whether or not, you know, the, it's the same process for the ADA. You know, do they have a disability? Does it substantially limit their work in the workplace? Can they perform the essential functions? Would this accommodation help them overcome that hurdle? And also, are there, are there other uh, accommodations that would be equally effective? So, you know, if the person had a recent case about a dog and the employee happened to sort of admit, well, I don't really need the dog, it just kind of gives me a little happy, well, that's not going to cut it. You know, so the, taking those employees' words and, and really using them to say, look, this is not a reasonable accommodation, this isn't, you know, really required for your disability, it just gives you a little happy. But if you get to the point where, you know, it is the accommodation, you can't really figure your way out of it, um, but you still don't really like it, then you could look to an alternate accommodation like letting the employee work from home. So, um, you know, you gotta work the process and there's strategies to kind of get where you need to go depending on your business need and how your, your culture, what you're inclined to do, but you gotta, you know, have a process and work it uh, to get to where you hope to go. So it seems like a, a lot of employers, they, they probably just neglect to actually work the process. They just wait till it's a problem instead of being process oriented with that? Yeah, they either don't work the process or they don't document the process or there's like a stray remark in there. You know, there was an employee with um, insomnia and he was coming and going from work and they were, they felt like they were bending over backwards to accommodate this person. Um, but at some point, uh, HR was clearly getting frustrated as, you know, on the claim side, once I'm looking at it, I'm looking at text messages, I'm looking at documents, I'm evaluating it as a lawyer to say, what's your risk here? And you know, in one instance, the HR person got pretty fed up and sent the employee with insomnia this product on Amazon that was some <laughs> sort of shock mechanism. Shock here, collar? Shock collar to wake you up. Here, you know, I realize you're having trouble waking up and getting to work on time. Here's a product you might want to try. And in a workplace where everybody's friends and you've been interacting a lot and you're trying to help somebody but the person's driving you crazy, I can see a scenario where someone in HR but not Philip <laughs> would say that. <laughs> But you know what the first thing the lawyer says when they say, like, you didn't accommodate this guy, it's disability discrimination? They're like, and HR had the audacity to suggest that he needs a shot collar to wake him up. He, they clearly don't take his disability seriously. They clearly had a problem um, with him because he had a disability. So um, it's sort of just keeping things tight the way you have to in HR and, and working the process and documenting it, which that's not to say that people can't do it successfully sort of on their own ad hoc, but when you get to either riskier industries a greater number of employees or tricky cases where you know your employees kind of looking to come after you, you need to get some extra assistance. Awesome. Well, Kat, I want to take the next couple minutes to, to allow you to kind of plug your business. So um, I'll state by saying this. I've, I've obviously known you for a long time, and you had a very illustrious career with a, with a big law firm in New Orleans and went out on your own, and I know that's you know nerve-wracking and risky, and it, you seem to be doing a fantastic job, so congratulations. Thank but you. tell us more about Perez Law Firm, or is it Perez Law LLC? Perez Law LLC. It's you know it's been an evolution since I opened in um, 2020 and during the pandemic, but what I, I've sort of narrowed it more recently to really try and address the things that clients have the most struggles with, and so um, you know I work with some pretty large employers on these ADA cases. I've created a ADA compliance program, which has all of the forms and documents, and, and this isn't a form-driven thing. The ADA is really requires a lot of judgment, but of course it's gotta start with, here's our policy, here's a request for accommodation form, here's how, how we're gonna go through the interactive process that really helps HR, you know, guides them through it without them having to figure out all the pieces because it can be really complicated. 
Um, so in the ADA space, uh, you know, I've, I've seen, I've heard the same question so many times. I've seen this similar cases so many times. I've been able to kind of create this program um, that would help HR go from start to finish to work these cases and, and elevate their ability to do so. So that's one way I work with clients, and then I'm also, you know, work with a lot of clients on retainer, doing um, all kinds of employment advices and training. So if, if someone listening was interested in getting a hold of you, how can they, how can they find you? Uh, check out my website. The n- one is up right now, but a new one will be out soon, www.pereslawllc.com. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us again. We always love having you. I always, always love is being here. Always great stories and good content. So that's another edition of Down the HR Rabbit Hole. Thank you all for joining, and we'll, we'll see you next time.